Radio. You're listening to PetLifeRadio.com. Welcome to Pet Talk Naturally, the place where your animal friends and nature come together to find health, happiness, and harmony with all the natural things the earth has to offer. Your hosts, Dr. Kim Bloomer and Dr. Jeannie Thomason, each week will lead you through the practice of taking care of your pets with all the wonderful natural elements that nature provides. So, get ready to learn about natural nutrition, preventative pet health, and more with your hosts, Dr. Kim and Dr. Jeannie. Well, hello, I'm Dr. Kim, I'm one of your hosts. And I'm Dr. Jeannie, your other host. And today we're going to be talking about a theory of animal mind with repeat welcomed guest, Dr. Myrna Milani. We love having her with us. And this article, wow, Jeannie, I don't know about you, but it's sung to my soul. Yes, definitely. Yeah, and again, yes, this is based on an article that Dr. Mil- and a theory that Dr. Mil- uh, Milani has, and so we're going to talk with her about that. Um, she is pretty tired. She did a big seminar this weekend, so we might just talk a little bit about that. But um, this is going to be a really interesting conversation, and I just feel like a child sitting at the feet of, of, of Dr. Milani when she's sharing because it's fascinating to listen to her and she always has great quotes and right. books for us all to read and learn more about animal behavior in the human-animal bond and of course animal health. So um, don't go away. We're going to hear from one of our radio partners and then we'll be right back. Time to take a walk down the path to happier and healthier pets. And while we're doing that, you get to listen to a few words from our sponsors. Naturally, Pet Talk Naturally will be right back. This valuable information comes from your pet. There's nothing like a wagging tail or friendly paw to lift your mood. They're therapeutic and make us feel good. Studies show pets even reduce stress, prevent heart disease, lower blood pressure, and fight depression. So there you have it. Pets are a daily dose of good health and happiness. Pets add life. To learn more, visit petsadlife.org. Pawfume Dog Grooming and Finishing Spray is proud to be a new sponsor of Pet Life Radio. Pawfume Super Long Lasting Sprays are available in four unique fragrances. Each Pawfume spray is fortified with the finest conditioners and detanglers to make combing out your dog more fun. Pawfume retails for only $2 per 6-ounce bottle. Pawfume is available nationwide at all Dollar General and Family Dollar stores. Why pay more to have your dog smell great? Pawfume, P-A-W-F-U-M-E. It's time for school for you and your friends, your furry best friends. Train your dog the fun and easy way with Teacher's Pet Sessions. Teacher's Pet host Pia Silvani teaches you step-by-step how to train your dog the fun and easy way. You get eight 30-minute live audio training sessions, complete transcripts of each session, plus a basic training manual to get you and your dog off to a great start. Training begins the moment you bring your dog home. Teacher's Pet Sessions offers positive reinforcement training to shape your dog's behavior and encourages upbeat, enthusiastic responses to ensure that your dog will enjoy learning. Teacher's Pet Sessions dog training is fun at both ends of the leash. 
So listen, learn, and laugh with your dog with Teacher's Pet Sessions. Get your copy of Teacher's Pet Sessions Volume 1 today. To order, go to TeachersPetSessions.com. Hi, this is Pia Salvani, your host. Bring your dog, tug toy, and treats, and get ready to have some fun. TeachersPetSessions.com. I'm Christine Latham, host of The Pampered Pooch. And I'm Vicki Nixon, your co-host. Ever get tired of people that say it's just a dog? Well, we do. It is a growing trend that people love and treat their pets like they are their children. This podcast series will be on topics inclusive of how people pamper their pooches, no matter how big or how small they are. On The Pampered Pooch, we'll talk about pet parties, happening social events, health, and nutrition. Each week, we pick a product of the week, a pooch of the week, and a pooch needing to be adopted. If you like to treat your pet like the royalty they are, then The Pampered Pooch is for you. Every week, on demand, only on PetLifeRadio.com. Let's Talk Pets. Let's Talk Pets. On PetLife Radio. PetLife Radio. PetLifeRadio.com. We're back, but our nature walk has just begun. Now, back to Pet Talk Naturally with your hosts, Dr. Kim and Dr. Jeannie. Well, as we said, we have Dr. Marna Milani with us, and you can find her website by going to mmilani.com. And um, I'll tell you what, sign up to get email alerts on those blog posts yeah. she writes. They're awesome. And her podcast. I love just listening to your, your voice, Dr. Milani. <laughs> it's very soothing. And, 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 you write, and you read with such, um, because you share your books um, in, a, in your podcast and your life stories and things that are happening with your own animals. And I think that that's, that's just fascinating to me. I think that you're an extremely good novelist. And so I hope that everybody will um, avail themselves of all the wonderful information you put at your website. Thank you for being with us again. I always look forward to this. Well, thank you for inviting me. I'm I'm delighted to be here as always. And we'd like to welcome our listening audience out there. Thank you for joining us, Christian. Thank you for always being with us in the chat. And um, she's an avid note taker, (laughs) so she's learning a lot. Anyway, um, Dr. Milani, you just had a uh, seminar this past weekend. Do you want to share a little bit about that? Because I know that's partly why you're so tired today. Right. I I do a series of seminars called uh, limited edition limited editions and they're limited to six people. And the oh, idea fun. being that it gives us time to have one to one in depth discussion and really address what people want to talk uh, about. And this particular one is called uh New Dog Dawning and it concerns eight common beliefs that people have about dogs and working with dogs and and canine health and how these beliefs affect the dog's health and behavior. And there are things like the belief that humans domesticated dogs, uh, that uh, the scientific method is the gold standard, that the problem-oriented approach is the best approach to medical and behavioral problems. Mm. Um, I'm trying to think what the other ones are. Oh, that if a dog is healthy and well-behaved, then the bond with the owner will be a good one. Then we look at um, responsible pet owners stay and neuter their pets. 
Oh, I'm trying to think. What are the other ones? Um, Are you looking at all those um, theories? (laughs) Controversial sometimes theories. Yeah, Yeah, they are. And and the reason I did that is, and I, I think I've mentioned this before when we've talked, I am very, very concerned that the domestic dog might be the first domestic species that we drive extinct. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we certainly seem to be on that path in this country. And so my feeling was, well, let's get these beliefs out in the open. Let's talk about them. Uh, another one was um, all positive training. Oh, and yeah, we, we had a discussion about that, didn't we? <laughs> and <laughs> Privately, and I mean. And basically what we did is we looked at the history of each one of these, you know, where they came from, uh, what we know about them, you know, what the science is, what general practice is. And then we looked at four possible choices relative to each one of them, the first choice being accept the belief as it exists, including any lousy feelings. The second one is hang on to the belief, but change, you know, either neutralize the lousy feelings or convert them to positive ones. The third is to change something either ourselves or the dog or whatever. And the fourth one is to just get rid of the belief. Hmm. It's not working. Get rid of it. So that's what we were doing. And I had um, three wonderful trainers here and who are making the transition from uh, doing non-problem training and from doing classes into doing behavioral work, and they're they're two different worlds. Mm-hmm. You know, and people like need to understand that. I think. Yeah, um, you know, it, it's kind of like the difference between um, teaching um, a bunch of first graders and teaching special ed. Mm-hmm. You know, there are just different factors that that come into play. Right. And so it was it was intense, uh, but. I like to think we all had a good time, and my puppy Ollie acted like just a total moron. So <laughs> this was good. This was good for me that I didn't do anything regrettable, <laughs> and we all got a good lesson in how difficult it is to ignore a beguiling puppy, even though we knew that this was what we should do. Mm. And then if anyone, you know, was... Uh, even uh, considering dozing off periodically, uh, BB would come out from somewhere and start snarking at Frickass, so that would bring everybody up. <laughs> Good for BB. No, BB is your um, deaf corgi. corgi. Yes, this is the deaf brain with damage. With the growing overbite. <laughs> yes, with the growing overbite, who is now, um, she she's seriously thinking about taking over, and I've and that's something else I have to blog about because it's I'm I'm just grappling with this whole thing is, you know, how much slack do I cut her because mm. she's brain damaged and how much do I say no? Right. And how do I know? Yeah. And you know what? That actually brings um, up a point that I'm going to talk with you about later. So hold on to that thinking that it was that 
animals are not deceptive or, or they are guileless, aren't they? So I, I think that we'll, we'll definitely want to talk about that today because um, it really goes to your your article and the title of today's show, um, The Theory of Animal Mind. And I found this very fascinating. And boy, sure, like I said, um, Dr. Myrna went to the soul of, of what I've been bulking yeah. and I talk about often and uh, it, it motivates us to continue um, sharing more and more not only about the human-animal bond but animal behavior. So um, what I'd like to do is um, ask you the very first question because I think it, it'll paint the whole scenario for for this topic today is, and I, I do hope before I go off on a other, other tangent, that people will look at the seminars that you offer, and if they're in your area, that they would consider taking them. Because if I were there, I would. Just I learn. would. In a heartbeat. <laughs> yeah. Because this is fascinating. Your mind is. I mean, you're you're a deep thinker, and uh, and people are going to hear that today when you share the quotes that you do and the books that you read. But it, it really tells us also how much you very much care about animals and respecting them as they are. So uh, what is, let's talk about the humans first, let's, what is the theory of mind? Well, the theory of mind is something that um, it, it's in uh, the human behavioral sciences and uh, to quote the Encarta definition, uh, there, it's composed of concepts of mental activity the way somebody conceives of mental activity in others, including how children conceptualize mental activity in others, and how they attribute intention to and predict the behavior of others. And all of that, you know, basically, uh, it's not that what that says is so extraordinary. It's just that at the heart of this is that it is the ability to do this that distinguishes humans from animals. And that's what set me off mm-hmm. <laughs> when, when, I, when I came across this because, uh, you know, intention uh, is, is, a big, is a big thing in ethology. Uh, mm-hmm. Cost-benefit analysis is a, is a big thing in, um, in ethology, in the study of animal behavior um, animal behavior in the natural setting that's the differentiation between ethology and animal behavior as taken on by those in the human behavioral sciences Pavlov, Skinner um, right. and the experimental people mm-hmm. and, and and one of their, their big things uh, was or is that animals are not deceptive. Yeah, and and so are. I mean, wh- what your response to that's quite interesting because <laughs> we have been talking about that again privately a lot. So I find this interesting. So go ahead, Dr. Milan. Well, it just the the idea that animals are incapable of uh, deception. You know, made me. They're pure ethereal beings, are they not? <laughs> oh, I. You know, I mean, they're. I, it just goes so far back, you know, and deceptive coloration and camouflage and deceptive behavior, and it's it's everywhere, mm-hmm. and and certainly people who well, have, where did that thought process come from? Where did the thought that animals 
could be could be nothing but guileless come from? You know, I honest, I I think what it is, um, it's not that the people who ascribe to the human theory of mind think that animals are guileless. They take what's called a mechanistic view. Mm. And the mechanistic view states that animals are incapable of emotion or cognition. Ah. Uh-huh. So it's not just that they're guileless, it's that they're mindless. Yeah. Yeah, and that is, again, another, yeah, uh, mm-hmm. that's an argument that they used to do or allow themselves to do other things with animals. Right. Um, you know, and, and I'll just go ahead and say it here because I feel like it's an elephant in the room, but, you know, that's where the thought that vivisection is is no big deal. Mm-hmm. Well, and and I think, you know, historically, um, if you look at the experiments that were done um, in psychology, mm-hmm. um, I think I can understand why they want to perpetuate that belief. Right. Uh, but yeah. by the by, the same token, this this whole idea, uh, and again, this was something we were talking about this weekend. Um, it's easier for those of us who work with companion animals and who have them and who love them to say, look, any moron knows that they're capable of conscious thought and emotion. Mm -hmm. But the implications of that are phenomenal. Right. Hmm. You know, that even though we say that, we're kind of arbitrary <laughs> and in the in the way we you know allot those qualities to them, we mm-hmm. want it both ways, you know exactly. right yeah. so we, we want it uh we want them to have thought and emotion when it suits our purposes, but when it mm-hmm. doesn't, then we want to take it away. Now, isn't that what is uh, fueling this new form of uh, training? And I, you know, we, Jeannie and I have been approached, of course, we get approached a lot to come on our show for, with various different things. And, and one of them is often um, training. You know, I've got a new training book on. It's all, it's all about, um, you know, treating your animal kindly and humanely. It's positive reinforcement. Training them humanely, right? Yeah, yeah. So, does that thought kind of follow that? Yeah. The thing about um, training is that, again, training came out of um, psychology. So mm-hmm. it came out of the human behavioral sciences. And so what we have is a training or a teaching method. And it is a, a method that is palatable to humans. And hmm. that kind of at the base of this teaching method is you have two options. You either punish or you reward. Ah. Mm-hmm. And at the beginning, we started out with, you know, spare the rod, spoil the child. Right. Mm-hmm. And that got carried over to animals. And then people said, geez, you know, that's not really nice. And so then we went to all positive. But mm-hmm. the thing is that both both of those options are come out of 
um, a method that was based on the mechanistic model that mm-hmm. animals are incapable of thought or emotion. And yet, the positive reinforcement training always brings up the fact that, you know, about the emotions and feelings and thinking of animals. I find that interesting that that's kind of an oxymoron. Well, it is. Um, and, and in fact, if if you read some of the, the people who are um, really knowledgeable in this field and they talk about it, um, they will rightfully admit that they could be replaced by a food dispensing machine. And that mm. is true. That's true. If you're doing it mechanistically, and it's the same way that you can uh, uh, you you can use a shop collar mm-hmm. because you want what you're doing here um, is creating the illusion that there is no person involved. Right. Right? Because this is what Skinner was looking for—a teaching machine. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and that, that's personal. interesting because um, part of it about animals being incapable of deception then goes to that they're uh, then they don't have emotions and feelings <laughs> it blows my mind and I just have to interject yeah. a story here that's kind of silly but it, this, for me it, it, it's just one of um, many that I've experienced with my own and as you share on your blog you experience quite a lot with your own animals also um, my dog knows that if I'm doing push ups then um, I'm very vulnerable to being goosed because I will fall on my face and he'll and laugh, and then it's almost like I could just see him looking at me like, ah. Oh. <laughs> and again, would that be anthropomorphizing? Would that be that I'm saying that he has, you know, this thinking and that he has that he can play games or practical jokes and so mm-hmm. forth? You see, so there, there's a lot of that going on. And, and in your article, The Theory of Animal Mind, and let's define that first before we go into this a little bit, um, Dr. Myrna, but you talk about, you just gave the theory of human mind. Right. And about animals not being, uh, or they can be deceptive, and, and almost that you're saying that they, you wouldn't be surprised if that parallels us because they've lived in such close proximity with us. And I know that they are learning things from us maybe at a rate we're not even aware of. But um, you talk about how, uh, then you, from there you go to say, what is, what is, then what would be the definition of the theory of animal mind? And I think that will really fill out for the rest of the show what we're going to be talking about. Well, what I, I did just to preserve my own sanity was, to come up with a theory of animal mind that I applied to these people and that it referred to their concepts of mental activity regarding animals. And it was the way some people lack the ability to conceive of mental activity in animals, including the animal's ability to conceptualize mental activity and attribute intention to and predict the behavior of others. Mm-hmm. So I just took uh, what they claimed for humans, and it is basically the the corollary of that. That when in their minds, when they claim that for humans, that simultaneously means that from where they're coming from, they deny 
these hmm. qualities for others. And it's and so I just say, hey, Mern, it's just the point of view, you know. I don't understand it, but mm-hmm. you know, it doesn't make them evil and and whatever. Right. And and just move on from it. That's um, interesting. I, and so um, then let's go to. From that, from understanding what you gave as how you see the definition of um, the theory of animal mind, you said that there's two different mindsets that are looking at animals. Um, there's the mechanistic, and then mm-hmm. we have the Alice in Wonderland. Now, the Alice in Wonderland is the one that will often get um, my motor going. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and I just have to say that right out front here. Uh, and again... The three of us sitting here talking, we definitely love our animals. If you read your blog posts, if anybody reads your blog uh, like we do, and I'm sure that our listeners do, Dr. Myrna, uh, they're going to know how much you care about your animals. Your latest um, exactly. you know, ongoing saga with Wit and also with Bibi talks about that, your love, your care, your concern, your passion for them. So let's, but let's talk about this Alice in Wonderland mentality and, and, and then um, flesh that out. So you say that there's, there's other way people look at the animals and why. So would you define um, what this Alice in Wonderland view is, you know, meaning that animal behaviors mean what they want them to mean, not necessarily what they are. Right. And so what these people do is that they view animals as symbols of their own belief. And they they do. They fall into opposite ends of the spectrum. There hmm. are those who consider themselves avid animal lovers, uh, but when you talk to them about uh you know, about their animals and about their beliefs and everything, you can see that they're just projecting their own their own beliefs on their animals. Could we uh, stop there for just a minute? Because there again, you've brought up beliefs several times, and I think right. that one of the things I had heard on a talk radio show I'd listened to on a regular basis, haven't lately, but um, they talked about that, beliefs being that people believe that just because it's their belief and they believe it enough, that makes it true. But truth right. isn't predicated right. upon beliefs. Well, and, and, the, and, it's, and it's really worse than that. Um, I, I recently read a, a book called The Brain Rules, and I'm trying to remember the author's name, and I can't. Uh, but it's a very readable book, and it, one of the chapters talks about the way we process visual data. And I always thought that, you know, the visual data comes in and it goes to our higher brain centers and we logically analyze it and, and make up our mind. But it doesn't. It goes to the emotional centers first. Hmm. And then it and, goes to the higher brain And when brain you say centers. that they're projecting, do you believe that a lot of times it's people that are, it's, it's a mission for them now um, because of maybe having... This isn't true of everybody, but you know maybe they had a really rotten childhood or whatever, and so right. now they're going to paint it differently through well, animals. I, I think in terms of the the what I would call the rabid all positive people, it is mm-hmm. definitely it's it's a fantasy uh, type situation, and I think that uh, there are a lot of people who use animals to dry run various things. Mm-hmm. And 
So this idea of giving this animal a perfect Garden of Eden experience mm-hmm. uh, is very, very seductive. Uh, the The problem with that, uh, from my point of view, is it's also very controlling. Mm. You know, it reminds me of, you know, that T-shirt, as long as everybody does what Mama says. Every single well, we have a, a question in the audience uh, for you from one of the other um, radio show hosts, Life Trekking. She mm-hmm. says, isn't it fair to treat pets like they are children? They're not children. Mm-mm. The thing, I, I think one way to look at this is to uh, turn it around and say, how would you feel if your dog could somehow magically speak and put his paw around your shoulder and say, he's... You know, Jeannie, I love you so much. I'm going to treat you like a dog. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Okay, and and not and I, I don't mean that in a denigrating way. Right, exactly. The you dog know, has dog needs, and the cat has cat needs, and the horse has horse needs. Exactly. And we're not helping them to elevate them. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, Dr. Myrna, I would status. say, yeah. yeah, in fact, I would say that that's really what we've been working uh, here on the show to hopefully share is that the respect comes, the dignity for them comes in allowing them to be what they are and right. approach them exactly. from that. And I think, you know, I was just saying uh, to Jeannie today, my dog understands everything I say to him. It's amazing to me, but gosh, I just don't understand everything he says. Well, and that's, uh, you know, that's why if you've got any listeners who are going to be in the Maryland area the first week in November, this uh, ethology, animal behavior, just the fundamentals of animal behavior as it relates to cats and dogs, uh, it's extraordinary. I mean, mm-hmm. I mean, just something like nursing. Who thinks about nursing? When we think about nursing, what do we think about? We think about, oh, it's the way the puppy or the kitten gets nourishment. Mm-hmm. Well, that's the physical part of it, but the behavioral part of it is extraordinary. And a lot of times they have to nurse for behavioral reasons a heck of a lot longer than they have to uh, nurse for food. But we get it in our mind as soon as they can eat on their own, they're out. And then we mm-hmm. wonder, why do we have flank-sucking dogs and wolf-sucking right. cats? And uh, and yet, if you look at the way uh, nursing works, especially like in uh, feral cat or, or barn cat communities, mm-hmm. it's not uncommon for them not to wean their kittens until they're 12 to 18 months right. Right. of age. That's, that's, see, that's fascinating to me, and that's more important that... For me, uh, as, and I'll, I guess I probably say this on nearly every show, we had started out teaching about natural animal health, and what we have learned along the way, Dr. Myrna, is that if we can teach exactly what you just said, if we can share that importance, then the animals will be healthy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and I think that's really what that's your whole teaching is well. about. Mm-hmm. You know, that's where you connect the dots between animal health, the human-animal bond, and, and animal intelligence. And, well, and uh, I think we've missed the boat a lot. Well, and I think, you know, like one of the things relative to behavioral problems, and I use the phrase, and I hate myself every time I do, 
because I have yet to encounter a an animal displaying a behavior that the owner considers a problem that is not 100% normal behavior for that particular animal in that particular physical and emotional environment at that particular time. Mm-hmm. So Good it's point. not a problem. It's normal. Does that mean it's acceptable? No. Right. But if I can get owners to understand where this animal is coming from, they have a tremendous psychological advantage because if I buy into this, oh, this this is this is a problem, this is a problem dog, this dog has a screw loose, you know, or whatever, now they've got to work uphill against that. Mm-hmm. And and now, you know, going back to what we were saying about this Alice in Wonderland approach, now the fantasy has has gone to pot and these people feel that the dog doesn't love them or the dog has betrayed has them. Has betrayed them, uh, right. I was just right. going to say that. And who wants to spend all the time and energy and money to turn around a scummy dog like that? Wow, yeah. You know, but on the other hand, if you say, well, yeah, well, this is totally, jeez, I didn't realize that that's what he was communicating mm-hmm. when he did that. Now that I do you think do you, do you think that that would contribute to possibly um, a lot of the surrenders? Oh yeah, you know one one thing I've I've found uh, working with with problem cats versus problem dogs. Uh, I think I've said before that. Uh, I tend to think of dogs as a four-legged, fur-covered mirror of our public selves and cats mm, as the wow. four-legged, fur-covered mirror of our private selves because mm. cats are so Freudian. You know, they're nocturnal. Yeah. <laughs> That's a good one. True. You know, they're maternal, sexual. I mean, they're all of those little things about ourselves that we we don't want to think about in public. Mm. Um, but That's interesting. It is. But the thing is, like, I've... You know, I've done uh, presentations, and I'll I'll be talking about marking or elimination problems. And if I'm talking to uh, a group of dog people, and I say, "Are there any questions?" There are never any questions. But what really? they do is they hide behind potted plants, and they leap out at me, and they go, "Psst!" <laughs> <laughs> about my dog, you know, or they're out lurking by my car. Oh, oh my, my goodness. goodness! You know, because they don't want anyone to know that their dog has this problem. On oh, the other wow. hand, a lot of people get cats with the understanding that they're weird. So hmm. that if I talk about elimination problems in cats, which is the number one feline behavioral problem, mm-hmm. and I say something about, uh, you know, how many of you have ever experienced this problem with your cat? I mean, I've been with some groups, and it's like one-upmanship. I mean, the hands are flying and someone's like, ha, Incredible. you think that's something that he pees on your shoe? You should have him pee on your head. And then somebody will say, oh, yeah, well, you're just talking about pee. Let me tell you about poop, buddy. <laughs> and, uh, um, so it's a different um, it's a different type of thing. But even hmm. then, I, I have noticed, though, that in the past maybe five, six years or so, that the cat 
owners are kind of drifting the same way um, as the dog owners as having this, you know, more intolerance. Um, and I think because the, this idea of the strict house cat is, a, it's a relatively new phenomenon. Mm-hmm. And, and that's I, what you really need in order to hang on to that illusion. I think you know you are really you are really on you're so observant, um, Dr. Myrna, and I'm mm-hmm. I'm pretty excited hearing what you're saying. I'm looking back over, and I've been thinking about this lately, um, the evolution of pet history, and I think we've talked about that here, and we've had a a historian who came on and shared the history of pets in just this country alone. And she and as, what's happened is that we as we've urbanized and moved away from our farm life people's uh, reality we don't have a reality check anymore right and so the way we look at animals again that we have become uh, as our guest or as one of our audience asked earlier you know pet parents um, to animals and I I've had a problem with that I you know yeah I mean we say mom dad all of these things but it's interesting how that evolution has come, and then we've come to expect things from animals that we never did before. Well, and I, I think the thing is, uh, the parenthood thing is actually right on the button, and mm-hmm. that the majority of canine behavioral problems could be very easily resolved if people were willing to relate to their dogs the same way a mature adult dog relates to a pup. And Mm -hmm. ditto for the cat. But because the average person doesn't know how a mature adult dog behaves. Exactly. Um, and, And the thing is, and it's like this whole alpha shtick. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, you know, mm-hmm. uh, I cannot tell you how many times um, I hear someone, including you know people in the media, and they'll refer to the, these dogs who are like, you know, growling and snarling and leaping. Or aggressive, right? Yeah, yeah, very mm-hmm. aggressive dogs as alphas, and they're not. Right. They're not. You know, the true alpha is. Energy conserving. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's like the person with a black belt and all the philosophy to go with it. They don't have to fight. Right. You know what? That brings up a point about horses. Again, a lot of people think the the dominant horse, the one kicking and pushing everyone around, is the leader of the herd. But the leader is the one that has the greater good of the herd at stake. They're always right. they're the ones who you know are the quiet leader, the one that has himself under control. (laughs) Well, and that's, uh, you know, a real nice rule of thumb um, in terms of uh, what people are doing doing relative to animals in terms of training and everything else, and also um, how animals are coping in their environment is Mm -hmm. to just look at the amount of energy they spend. Right. A lot of stress going on there is what what uh, oh, yeah. we're seeing, and then again, there's a lot of inf- there's a lot of things going on legislatively because people just don't understand. They don't know animal nature. They don't. They just don't anymore, Doctor Myrna. 
Um, I, I agree. And I, if someone had told me 10 years ago that I would be emphasizing calming exercises and stress-relieving um, exercises in for my clients the way I am now, I would have laughed. Yeah, I guess. Uh, but now, but that's how fast we 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 um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? We've just we've kind of just really lost it altogether. You know, cats aren't allowed outside anymore. Heaven forbid that they're allowed to roam as a cat. You know, I mean, dogs aren't allowed to. I mean, they they must. Everything's contained and tight and safe. Well, so and I safe. and and I have to wonder whether it's because we are. Again, because we do use them as such potent symbols, mm-hmm. that they are so valuable to us as emotional protectors. Wow. We can't bear the thought of not having them always under our control. And, mm. and of course, the problem... With it. Unlike our human children that grow up and leave, and I actually read a right. book about that recently where they said our animals are always with us. They're always under our control, but our children grow up and leave, but our animals mm-hmm. don't, which is why it's devastating for us when we lose them. Have you noticed, though, that a lot of kids aren't leaving either? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a good point. Uh, that's true but, for different reasons. You know, huh? this is, but this has become... You know, this has become an issue, too. But I think the other thing to keep in mind is that these animals have evolved for thousands of years to take their cues from us. Mm -hmm. And if we're frightened, if we're scared, how can they possibly be relaxed? Yeah. Well, Good and then the point. stress for humans has gone up. I mean, we're 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 living a really oh, high sure. stressed, you know, constantly doing life. People don't relax yeah. and hang out and you know get to know each other anymore. Neighbors don't know each other, so everybody's contained in their own little walled areas. Well, and uh, one of the things that we were discussing this past weekend was if you look at American society right now, we are functioning the same way as a dog pack without an alpha or mm. a hive of bees without a queen. Mm. We're mm. just like, little, 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 you know, kind of where who's in charge, what's going on, nobody nobody is sure. Because right. Well, and that are, even mirrors what's going on with the elephants, as Jeannie and I have been yep. reading about, you know, mm-hmm. the, the, the matriarch, because of the, them calling the herds, the matriarchs and the bulls have been, cold and then the juveniles are just running amok. Yep. There's no there's no mentor, there's no leadership or guidance. Right. There's no one to teach them what an elephant's supposed to act like. And and that's the same thing that's happening with some of the um, animal transport where puppies are being shipped from down south oh, to shelters bet. up here. They're taken away from their mothers when they're very young. Oh. Um, and so you have, you know, basically it's kind of like Lord of the Flies. You know, mm-hmm. you know what? Great. That is a good point. Boy, that mm-hmm. was a scary book when I read it. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, it's like, you know, kids raising kids and right. uh, plus pediatric spay and neuter. So that yeah. causes some... Uh, mental confusion and now sure. uh, physical issues too. So uh, there's and, yeah, and yet you get that whole spay neuter issue goes back to people wanting to prevent 
something. It's the and I use the equivalent of saying, let's spay and neuter all of our um, puppies and kittens at the age of eight weeks or four months or whatever ridiculous age they're putting on them. Um, it would be the equivalent of saying, let's let's make sure all of our children at age five have been sterilized so that they won't have teenage pregnancies. Mm-hmm. Right. It makes no sense. Well, and and I I think you know it's. It's again. It's projection. Yeah, that we are. Yeah. We want the animal to uh, bear the consequence that the animal has become the the sacrificial lamb. That we don't want to accept responsibility for keeping a leash on our dogs and and whatever. And and I mean the the spay and neuter question is a very very complex thing. But you know we just had huge study and uh, published in the Journal of the American Veterinary Medical Association several months ago uh, about hip and knee problems related to uh, pre-adult span and neuter. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's kind of, you know, blown the whole thing open in terms of the ethics of it. Uh, but what it really boils down to uh, is that we want our pets to be convenient, Mm. Oh, that's no a good doubt. point. Yeah. That's exactly what it is. And you know what? Life is just not convenient. It wasn't meant to be. It's a journey. <laughs> yeah. You know, for, I, for us and the animals. Um, you know, it was interesting that you said that because, again, I, I'm glad that you mentioned the convenience. Um, I just read an article that had my hair standing on. Up, you know, it's pretty wild anyway, but it was really wild after I read that article by the uh, Academy of American Pediatrics, which I'm not enamored of them right now anyway, just be a lot of issues. But they were put out this list of eight pets that are big, they said big threats to children. And I thought pets, okay, hamsters were on there, hedgehogs, cats and dogs. And it all goes back to, well, they could bite, they could cause allergies, you know, they could give you diseases, you know, zoonotics. And and here I'm going, okay, I don't know of any disease a cat and dog can get give, you know, if you, you vaccinate them so they won't get parvo. I've never heard of children getting parvo. The only thing would be rabies. You know, so th- I thought this was insane because when we grew up, children had pets to learn responsibility, to learn about, um, to learn about life, to learn about, uh, and just, you know, you hung out with your pets. They did things with you, and 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 it was part of your life. And I, I that thinking is just out there, Doctor Myrna. Well, I that is um, in a way that's the subject of this month's commentary, which is the problem-oriented method and evidence. Right, and you did write that. That is, uh, you know, they're just looking. Uh, I'm sure the pediatricians are looking at bites. Uh, right, and. And well, even but it would make parents afraid to go out and have any of these pets that have been pets forever. Right. right. Um, and and, and I, I think that's, um, you know, again, it's this making blanket statement. And, yeah. Mm-hmm. And um, I'd like to ask them when they became animal behaviorists. And <laughs> well, and, you know. and get, that goes back to the theory of, of mind where these people, there are those people out there who think that because they know about humans, in their minds, humans are at the top of the, the species pyramid, so that automatically means that they know everything there is to know about any other species, and if they don't know oh, it, wow. it's not important. Oh, man. So they don't even think to ask. 
because it never crosses their mind. Trust that's me to scary. write an article in response mm-hmm. to that. <laughs> and and that, that's that's really that's really tough. And uh, and and it happens, you know, it happens within the biological uh, sciences too. That uh, one of my favorite. Uh, people is is Donald Griffin, and he was the the man who discovered the sonar in bats, and he's one of those uh, very well uh, thought of uh, academics who waits and who waited until he retired <laughs> to talk about animal thinking and mm-hmm. animal minds because he knew if he had done it when he was still part of the system, uh, they would have He'd been denigrated. Before. Yeah. Right. Uh, but he was quoted um, in an interview, and he said, It's a curious point that I've made in all my books, that in the face of very weak evidence, we scientists tend to make very strong negative statements. No animal does this. Animals can't do that, and so on, when we really don't know. Mm-hmm. I think we should have an open mind. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, that's a novel thought. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and and I think you know, and that was the thing about the the theory of mind, the 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 human theory of mind, that so got me. It wasn't that they believed it so much; it was the idea that it just never dawned on them that it could be any other way. Right. There was an, uh, and, and I'm going to go to a, I don't like quoting this man, but um, to Hitler thought if you taught somebody something and said it often enough, it would be, it, they would be, people would believe it. And I almost, when I was reading that, that you had written that, um, mm-hmm. that same thought, I was thinking, yeah, if we repeat something often enough, people come to believe it. Again, I go back to this bay neuter issue. And and that's just one of many 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 things that we've come to believe about animals and and and, and how they are to be with us in our lives. And well, and 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 I think like with this seminar, the reason um, I picked the the eight beliefs I did is because there was not a single belief that we discussed that I would not have died for at one time. Mm. I mean, relative to spay and neuter, heck, I could have won the Golden Gonad Award. Right. You know, I mean, there wasn't a set of testicles that was safe for me anywhere in the county. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I understand how these beliefs work. That when you're part of a particular the the belief culture, if you will, mm-hmm. it's mm-hmm. there. And I'm sure we could find many uh, websites that take a very, um, I'm going to say, a romanticized view of companion animals. I'm not going to say anthropomorphic True. because I think there are some legitimate, uh, you know, commonalities between... Uh, I'm glad you said that. Humans mm-hmm. behave and the way animals behave. And, you know, as a biologist, um, humans are just another animal to me. Right. So, uh, but there is this romanticized view. It's a very symbolic view. Uh, and... That is, that's very difficult because the other thing that happens is that when an animal is a symbol, making changes becomes very, very difficult. And mm-hmm. what it boils down to for these people, and I ache for them, um, and it's, well, it was the 
sort of central theme in getting fixed, which is you have to in your book getting fixed, right? Yeah, right. and and the novel, and it was okay. If you have to choose, what are you going to choose? The animal, the animal's health and behavior, or hanging on to that belief? Yes. Which one is more important to you? Because you can't have them both. Very good. And you know what? I actually had um, an ongoing conversation for a while with someone last year who was an ACO, and her whole, she understood my, you know, my thought process on, um, we were talking about the spay neuter issue with baby animals, and they were in an uproar over my take on things because for me it was about health. Mm-hmm. And she says, "I get that, but our viewpoint is we'd rather see them suffer from their health than to die, um, you know, in a kill shelter." Well, and and and, w- and what that really boils down to is that as long as we don't have to kill them. <laughs> Right, you know, right, and again, that's that's the other thing because what's going to happen is then they will have health problems, and who will ultimately have to euthanize or kill that animal would be the pet owner, well, where they feel all the problems are in the first place. Usually, spayed and neutered animals that end up in the shelters and pounds anyway. Mm-hmm. Well, and and what I'm seeing is we, you know, I can remember the old days when we used to sneer at the the couple who would get a dog or a cat and allow that animal to have a litter so that their kids could right. see them. Right. I remember that. Okay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, we have, a, we have a whole generation of kids out there whose pet experience is watching their lab or their golden die of cancer. Right. Or their, or their cat. Mm-hmm. That's the experience that they're having. Yeah. And we might want to also say here, because, you know, people, this is such an emotional issue for people. We're talking about this early baby neutering in Spain. Mm-hmm. And not not when they're, I mean, you know, not everybody's going to be able to handle an intact animal, but, I mean, this is this is what we're talking about, right? Right. But, I, you know, I think, again, I, what we need to do is we need to talk about this rationally. You know, this is right. my filthy rich animal think tank here. Uh, <laughs> and so oh, yeah, got, that's right. I forgot about that. We've got to get out and we've got to talk about this and see what our priorities are. And, and mm-hmm. I mean, the, you know, the, the bottom line is that this is a human issue. This is not an animal issue. And again, again going back point. to you know, you know, going back to animal behavior. If you study reproductive behavior in animals, there is population control is built right into the system. Mm-hmm. You would think so, if we would just watch and mo- you know, this is partly what the horse people are doing in model and watching the wild mustangs. Yeah. Okay. And again, I think we've really kind of failed in that with our dogs and cats. Well, I, I I think what we've been doing is we have been making the animals pay the price for our yes. unwillingness to accept responsibility for very there difficult you go. Wow. Amen to that. Yes. You know, so that's our fault. Mm-hmm. And, right. And uh, if we, as a society, decide that that's what we want to do, that we can't be bothered and we want them to deal with the negative side effects, 
I can accept that, but please do not tell me that you're doing it because you love those animals. Mm-hmm. And for the health of the animal. It's certainly, yeah, right. yeah. certainly well. that's certainly a myth that's been really propagandized and perpetrated yeah. upon um, the, the public that doesn't seek out the truth for themselves. And, yeah, um, I, I, I mean, and I, well, on my website under references, uh, people click on references, there's a whole, I keep track of as many of the uh, spay and neuter references that I get. I'm a little behind, though, because that last big study isn't up there. Mm. Um, but it's, um, you know, it's, it's again, it's another one of those issues. Oh, good. BB's. <laughs> Actually, I think great. BB's pretty passionate about this topic. Yeah, BB's into the snarky mode here now. <laughs> oh, she's in her snarky mode. Oh, yeah, she's going after Frick. Oh. <laughs> um, but it's, you know, it, it all goes back to how are we, how do we relate to these animals? Are they, mm-hmm. you know, are, do they have their own needs? Do they have their own rights? Or uh, are they just what we want them to be? Again, and, I, and again, yeah. you said something interesting just a minute ago. You said, you know, is it about them and their rights or who they are as beings? And I think that what we have done with this whole rights issue also has been about humans, not about the animals. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And and in fact, it just amazes me. I would say as a group, most of the animal rights people probably know less about animal behavior and the environment than any other animal group out there. And I have yeah. been reading about that, and I am I'm shocked. It's appalling, yeah. Dr. Yeah. Moon, I, I am shocked at the lack of knowledge there, which is really sad to me. It feels to me like it's all projection. Mm-hmm. It's all self-projection. And that is doing a great disservice to animals, in my oh, opinion. Oh, boy, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. it can't, it is not about animals because, and Jeannie and I were talking about this the other day, the people who are working and studying animals uh, in the wild, or in in um, domesticity as you are, they're the ones who are who really get it. But you guys are very quietly doing your work and sharing with those who are seeking it out. And then there are those other people who are out there projecting it all to the world, and the world thinks that is thinks that that is gospel without doing their homework. Mm-hmm. Without, and I find that reprehensible. reprehensible. Personally, it's, because it's a variation. you bring an animal home, it's our responsibility to know about them and their intelligence and their nature and their behavior. Well, it's a variation of the foghorn theory. Have you ever heard the of the foghorn? Fog, oh, okay. Well, I'd like to hear that one. <laughs> yeah, the foghorn theory says that the less some people know, the more noise they make. Yeah. Hmm. <laughs> yeah. That's it. And that's pretty, that's pretty simple and profound at the same time. Yeah, wow. very profound. Well, it goes back to that energy efficiency again. Look at all the energy versus what they're actually saying. And a mm-hmm. uh, lot, lot of energy out there, a lot of, lot of talk. Um, but in terms of... But they don't know, know what they're talking about. Yeah, meaningful change. You know, I mean, <laughs> uh, it's like the old joke about the woman who couldn't get her car started at the light and the guy behind her just kept laying on the horn and laying on the horn and she was getting more and more flustered trying to get the car started. 
Finally, she got out of her car, and she went back to his car, and she rapped on the window, and he rolled the window down, and she said, Look, I'll make you a deal. You go up and start my car, and I'll sit back here and blow the horn. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I love that. I love that. That's great. Well, Dr. Myrna, we've actually run out of time. I'm so pumped because it goes way too fast with you. Um, But I know I... I know we have to have you back. This oh, is, yes. Just, just count on Dr. Myrna being a repeat as long as she's willing. And, <laughs> That's um, right. Go, go to her website at com. That's M-M-I-L-A-N-I.com. And uh, listen to that podcast. Read the blog. You guys will learn so much. I, oh, yeah. she, I, I owe a lot to what I'm learning with reading and, and listening and, uh, to what she is sharing. It's, and it's very... Um, it's very it's deep thinking, and I like that, and it's really, really great for the animals, and, you know, not this other stuff that we're talking about today. I mean, it really, uh, the animals will benefit if you'll just heed what she is sharing. Um, Dr. Myrna, we're going to put you on the spot in closing and ask you, everything you've shared has been words of wisdom, but what do you want the audience to walk away with just being most impressed upon knowing? I, th- I think that, you know, relative to animals, uh We have a choice. We can either relate to them in a way that meets their needs or our needs. Ideally, it would be nice if we could do both at the same time, but if we can't, if we must choose, what's it going to be? And that is, uh, and um, want everybody to walk away, just ask yourself that question. Hold yourself, look in the mirror, and hold that person accountable. Um, Dr. Myrna, thank you for being with us, and we look forward thank to the so next much. time, and uh, wish you success in all that you are doing. And Jeannie, in the spirit of love and truth. We hope you all have a tail wagging, hoof stomping, wing flapping, perfectly animal talking day. Pets and nature come together every week on Pet Talk Naturally with your hosts, Dr. Kim Bloomer and Dr. Jeannie Thomason. Learn how to care for your pets with all the wonderful natural elements that nature has to offer so your pets can live a happy, healthy, and harmonious life. Pet Talk Naturally, every week on demand, only on PetLifeRadio.com. Naturally. Naturally.